following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Get this now. Verses 21 to 48. That's right. We're going to be looking at a very large section of Scripture, and we're going to be looking ahead. So, hear me, because some people in first hour somehow didn't get this. We're actually going to go through the entire passage, an overview, so that then in the following weeks, we'll look at each paragraph in this passage each week, one per week. We're going to look at six paragraphs as we go through this passage to get today and an overview to get the full impact of Christ's words, to see what he's actually doing here. What he's doing is he's asking some of the most important questions that can be asked as he continues to do the spiritual EKG on your heart. He's trying to expose the hearts of the people who are listening there in the north end of the Sea of Galilee on that perfectly acoustic slope, and you have joined him in that effort, and he's going to be asking some really direct questions pointed right at your internal person. Christ is going to do that. He's going to ask questions like, are you religious or are you actually in a relationship with me? He's going to ask, are you driven by truth or are you just kind of traditional? Are you internally transformed, and here's the scary one, or are you merely externally conformed on the outside? Are you serious about the depths of your sin? Are you just kind of, you know, deal with it once in a while when it shows its ugly face in your life? Are you attacking the sins of your heart, like your desires, your thinking, your motives, or just outward, external, and obvious sins? Have you been converted to Christ genuinely, or have you merely conformed to Christianity? That's what he's going to ask in verses 21 all the way to 48. And we're going to look at all of it now, and then we're going to go back, section by section by section. Six major points today that next week we'll look at just the first point and draw out all the truth that's there. This is the Lord is easily telling you, and he divides this section up very clearly by saying this, you have heard it said... And then he responds with, but I say to you, you have heard the error of the Pharisees, the scribes, and their oral tradition. You've heard all that, what the ancients told you. But I say to you the truth of God's word. Now the hardest part of this sermon is right now. Because I'm going to ask you all, now that you're comfortable, ready to take notes, to stand. And take your Bible, and I want you to read it silently as I read it out loud. It's the longest passage I have ever read on a single Sunday sermon. So stay with me, focus here, thank you for standing in honor of the Word of God, and take a look at verses 21 to 48. You read silently, I read aloud, it says this. You have heard that the ancients were told, you should not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, 
that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and then you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it out from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it away from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Verse 31. It was said... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond this is of evil. Verse 38, but you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go to one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your, what? Enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be, what? Perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would take your word and that you would change our lives. And Father, that you would open our eyes to your truth and expose our hearts and glorify yourself today, even if it's painful for us. Father, we want your will always above our will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. The Pharisees taught that righteousness comes from performing certain actions and avoiding certain sins. 
And interesting enough, Jesus said that righteousness comes from a transformed heart. It needs to be given to you. You need to be transformed. And likewise, with sin, the Pharisees had a list of exterior, external actions that they considered sinful. But Jesus teaches that sin comes from within the heart. Anger is murder in the heart. Lust is adultery in the heart. The person who says he lives by the Sermon on the Mount doesn't realize that it's actually tougher to live by the Sermon on the Mount than it is to live by the Ten Commandments. Because he's going after the heart. He just taught us, Jesus did, in verses 17 to 20, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, destroy it. But to do that, Christ has to explain something to that listening crowd, and really to us as well. And that is this. There's a big difference between God's word, God's law, and the oral tradition or the rules around the faith that the rabbis had invented for hundreds of years. There are thousands of them now. And that's what they're living by, the oral tradition, not the actual Bible itself. So he's exposing that truth, and he highlights six different areas where the Pharisaic tradition of the day, the oral tradition, distorted God's truth in God's Word. Six different ways he's going to expose our hearts. And in the six coming weeks, we're going to look at each paragraph as he does that. Every time he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, that will be a different paragraph that we'll look at in the six coming weeks. But I wanted you to see the overview today. You say, what's the purpose of these six statements in the rest of chapter 5? These verses demonstrate that perfect obedience is an unattainable goal. Can I hear an amen to that? It is. You need Christ. And in this passage, Jesus explains why righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is completely inadequate. You need Christ to save you and give you His righteousness. And the purpose of this section is to stress the real meaning of the Word of God in the Old Testament. And these verses give a clear moral ideal of what is truly right and what is truly wrong. Christ is not altering God's Word. It's His words. He's just clarifying it because it's been so maligned and misused and distorted. And so He is basically correcting the Pharisee, Rabbi, scribe distortion of God's Word And they have heard the error, Jesus keeps saying. But I'm going to tell you the truth. Are you ready? You're going to hear it. What's the difference between a relationship and religion? Relationship is going to deal with hate in your heart, number one, not merely murder. Hate in your heart, not merely murder. Verse 21. You've heard, the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable in the court. But I say to you that everyone who is what? Angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Everyone says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And everybody says, you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Now stop there and and get a gander at where we're at today. Do we live in an angry society? Oh, one Out of every 35 deaths a while back in Chicago, one out of every 35 normal deaths in Chicago and Seattle and New York, one of them out of 35 was a murder. That's how much that's taken over a society. And they were basically murders by crimes of passion. Almost all of them. And most of these murders were caused by anger among friends and family. Do you realize that the most dangerous call 
of a police officer is a domestic dispute. That's when most officers are killed. Because they enter into massive, massive anger. Caused by divorce. Caused by marriages that are unstable. Remarriages. Broken families. They are a source of unchecked anger. And that's why Jesus didn't say, he didn't say that anger leads to murder. He said anger is murder. Now, there is a holy anger against sin. And there is a righteous anger against injustice. And we know that from Philippians chapter, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. But here, Jesus is describing an unholy, unrighteous anger against people. Anger becomes sin when it's directed at other people. When it is full of vindictiveness and retaliation. The Greek word anger actually means an inwardly nursed, unsettled anger and malice. And the Lord is helping us understand sinful anger by illustrating in these verses when anger is expressed verbally, when you say raka, some of your translations, or empty head, you know, a name, or fool, this verbal abuse stems from the same sinful heart motives of anger and hatred, which can ultimately lead to murder itself. Uh, This really actually provides a key for your dealing with anger. Are you ready? Write it down. Don't express it. Don't say it. Especially to the one you're angry at. Now, I am not, and Christ is not suggesting that you bottle it up inside and wait for it to explode and destroy your health. No, there are two very healthy options in the Bible. Number one, talk to the Lord about it. There are some immature Christians who think the only way they can talk to God is to go, I, thy holy God, and not actually say, Lord, I'm battling with being angry, which he says, cast all your care upon me because I care for you. He wants you to tell him, talk to him. The second thing is work it out with a brother or a sister in Christ that is not the one you're angry at. Have somebody hold you accountable. Come alongside you because you should not speak what you will regret and when you're angry, you will regret it. Amen? You will. Don't do it. There is this warped opinion today. I can't believe it. It's floating around. It is absolutely against the scripture and it believes that you must say everything you think, everything you feel to your spouse, to your kids, to your friends or you're not being honest. That is, that, that's Wrong! Can't even think of the right word. God says, guard your mouth with a muzzle. In other words, don't say it. So you may not sin with your tongue. That's Psalm 39 verse 1. Do not speak words of anger to each other. Angry speech makes you a destroyer, not a builder. A destroyer. Internal anger robs you of freedom, makes you a prisoner. To hate someone is to commit murder in our hearts. You say, Chris, is that really true? Listen and read yourself 1 John 3.15. Look at it in your outline. Everyone who hates his brother is a what? Is that pretty plain? And then he says the shocking statement, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding him. Whoa. We got to deal with this. 
The internal hard attitude of anger is what the law prohibits. Therefore, even an abusive insult like raka carries the same moral guilt as the act of murder. So this does not mean that we should go ahead and murder somebody because we hate him and we've already sinned in our hearts inwardly, all right? That's kind of foolish thinking. Obviously, sinful feelings are not excuses for sinful deeds. Do you get that? It's not. Sinful anger robs us of fellowship with God, robs us of fellowship with our brothers and sisters. But listen, sinful anger does not put us in jail as a murderer. There's a difference. Are you tracking with me? However, be warned, more than one person has become a murderer because they failed to control their sinful anger. It just got away from them. In one sense, Jesus is saying to his followers, so what? In this sermon, he's going, hey, so what? You didn't commit murder. You have still uncontrolled sinful anger in your heart. And that's God being aware of the sinfulness of your heart. And when you find it there, Christ continues in verse 23 to 26 to say, deal with it aggressively and deal with it quickly. Deal with it. Don't let it go. we got to go to our brother. Get matters settled if you can. Work it out in prayer. Talk to a fellow believer. But don't tear down those you love or are called to love. The scribes got it wrong. They got it wrong. The Pharisees, the rabbis, they got it wrong. You are not made righteous just by avoiding murder. You are righteous, pleasing to Christ, by dealing with the sins of your, say it, your heart. And that's where anger resonates. So is the Lord today calling you to repent of internal anger or hatred in your heart? Number two. You know you're in relationship and not merely religion when you're dealing with lust in your heart and not merely adultery. Lust in your heart. Verse 27, you have heard, Jesus says, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's not saying that women don't commit lust. He's just saying that men mostly do. But no... That verse 29 and 30 adds this. If you're lusting, cut out your eye and cut off your hand. How's that? There you go. Good teaching, right? Now, Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. He's not. Mutilation does not cure lust since lust is a sin of the... And you can cut anything off you want. I'm telling you, you're not going to deal with your heart. It's the heart issue that's got to be dealt with. And Paul... And Jesus and the New Testament and Christ here is using a graphic hyperbole to illustrate, to demonstrate the seriousness of lust. You see this all through the New Testament. It would be more profitable for you to lose a member of your own body than to bear the eternal consequences from the sin of lust. He's saying this is serious stuff. You need to deal with this. You don't want to bear the eternal consequences of lust. Lust must be dealt with drastically because there are serious consequences. Serious. And Jesus is affirming God's design for purity. What he's doing here. Then the Lord explains the intent of his law was to honor God's design for intimacy. God's design. God created sex. It is his good design. And what he says about intimacy must be obeyed. It must be followed. You gotta, he's the one who designed it all. You've got to do it the way he designed it. God designed for sex is simple. Write this down. Ready? Outside of marriage, never. Inside of marriage, always. There you go. It's pretty simple. 29 times in the New Testament. 29 times. 
forbids sex outside of marriage, and yet God repeatedly commands sexual intimacy inside of marriage. God's not trying to rob you, control you, frustrate you, but he wants to bless you by his design. But lust will mess that up. Lust or strong desire, if it continues unchecked, we will suffer consequences like guilt, like scarring, like harming our marriage and what God's design was for your marriage and lack of common sense and lack of sensibility. Worse, it's going to just permeate your life. It actually deadens you. Sexual purity and even impurity is first and foremost begins in the heart the desires of the heart. And Jesus is not saying that lustful desires are identical with lustful deeds here. He's not saying that. Therefore, if a person, if you're lusting, you should go ahead and commit adultery. No, the desire and the deed are not identical, but spiritually speaking, they're both sins, right? Lust and adultery. But the look that he's talking about here in verse 28, look at it. The look is not a casual glance. It's a constant stare for the purpose of lust. It is possible for a man, a Christian man, to look at a beautiful woman and know that she's beautiful and not lust for her. That's totally possible and very often practiced. But Job warns, Job 31.1, great passage, I have made a covenant with my eyes. What's the promise you made to your eyes? How then could I gaze the long look at a virgin? The man Jesus describes here looks at a woman in Matthew 5 with a gaze for the purpose of feeding his sensual appetites as a substitute for the act itself. And this is not accidental, it's planned. It's, in, it's intentional. So how do we deal with internal lust of the heart? Well, let's get to the main issues in the New Testament. There's a lot of steps here, but let me give you three that are pretty important. One is you pursue Christ. You pursue Christ. When we keep our eyes on the pure one, we'll live more pure. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Learn to direct your passions towards Christ. Desire God most, and what happens is other passions will lessen. When he becomes your passion, other things will not be. Are you tracking with me on this? This is what he's saying. Secondly, pounce on your thoughts because this is an internal issue and it's got to be battled with in the mind. Lust is an internal battle for the mind. It's the emotions that then enter into the mind that then exits into the will. You got to stop it in the mind. So make sure you're dwelling on mental eye candy, biblical eye candy, right? What is that? Biblical mind candy is... What is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely. Philippians 4.8, what is good repute. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. That's biblical mind candy. And then number three, prepare to flee. In this particular sin, the sin of lust, prepare to flee. Now flee from youthful, what? Lust, strong desires. So pursue then righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call upon the Lord from a what? pure heart. He's saying, look, you got to not only deal with this over here, but as you flee, you need to be pursuing Christ, pursuing the things of the Lord. That makes you run away from the thing you're supposed to flee from. Now, would you agree with this? I hope you'll wrestle with this. Physically, there are things we must not see and we must not watch. That's what flee implies. There are things we must not see and we must not watch. There are places that you need to avoid. It's different for everybody. 
There are people you can't be around. And there are clothes you must not wear. God tells you here there are some things you must flee. Write it down. Flee means to run in terror. The Bible actually tells you, Christian, run away. Don't discuss it. Don't ponder it. Don't do any. Just get out. And the rabbis were wrong. They were saying, hey, you're righteous if you merely just avoid adultery. Well, Jesus says, no, you're righteous and pleasing to Christ by dealing with the internal sins of the heart, and including lust. Is the Lord calling you today to repent of lust in your heart? Number three, you know you're in relationship and not merely religion. If you divorce only for adultery and not merely handing out a certificate of infraction. All right, let me explain this. Verse 31 and 32, look at it. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give him a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now the rabbis took massive liberty with their interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. So verse 1 there is listed in your outline, and they misused this verse when it said, a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And he goes on to explain all this. The scribes used this verse, verse 1, and all the way through 4, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, as if it were merely given to regulate divorce paperwork. That's what it degraded to by the time of Christ. And so they had wrongly concluded that a men could divorce their wives for anything. No fault divorce. Nothing new. They, dis, you know, basically anything that displeased them as a husband. As long as they gave a certificate of divorce, as long as they did the paperwork, they were okay. Now, Moses didn't do it for the paperwork. He provided Deuteronomy 24 as a concession to protect the woman who was being divorced, not to justify or legalize divorce for any and all consequences and reasons and circumstances. Jesus gives an exception here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, except for the cause of sexual immorality. Divorce was allowed in cases of adultery. When we continue to read in the New Testament, the Spirit of God motivated the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, we can add because of abandonment. Abandonment, adultery and abandonment. Now, if it was not for adultery and abandonment, and she remarried, then Matthew 5.32 says, then he causes her to commit adultery. The assumption is, is that divorced people are going to remarry if the divorce was not for sexual immorality or desertion for adultery or abandonment, the divorce was not for those reasons, then any remarriage is adultery, Jesus says. Now, how does that work? Well, remember, biblically, marriage is this. Get this down. You really got to understand this. Marriage is a vow before God. That's why the most important part of the ceremony is the vow before God. Skip the flowers, skip the procession, skip the dresses, skip all the money, just get together and vow, okay? That's the marriage, point one. The second element is the honeymoon, the union between a husband and a wife. That's marriage, a vow and a union. That's how God defines it. You got to get that. You got to understand that. It makes things very clear because adultery breaks the physical union 
and desertion breaks the vow. That's why there's exceptions. God in His grace allows for divorce for the innocent party and those two circumstances, adultery and abandonment. The Pharisees were wrong. You're not made righteous by giving divorce paperwork, but you're pleasing to Christ by dealing with the internal sins of your heart and only divorcing for adultery or abandonment and only if you can't reconcile in most cases. Is the Lord today calling any of you to repent of any unfaithfulness in marriage in reality or even any unfaithfulness in your where? Heart. Now there's a lot more to say. And that's why we're doing an overview today, but we're going to come back to this, okay? So hang on. It's okay. Some of you are panicking. You're gripping your side arms really hard. Number four, you know you're in a relationship and not a religion when you keep your word. When you keep your word and not merely make an oath. Again, verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, it's the footstool of his feet, by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. This is the sin of using an oath to affirm what you say is true. You don't need that. As a Christian, he says, no, don't do that. Maybe you say, I give you my word. I'm telling you the truth. Or I swear. Or this is true. Or honest to God. Or if Jesus were here physically, he would confirm this. Or, my favorite, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Remember that? You say that because you're saying, I want to make sure you know I'm telling you the truth. And Jesus says, no, no, as a Christian, you don't need that. That's not good. These verses should not be taken as a universal condemnation of all oaths and that all oaths are sin listen God used an oath Christ spoke under oath the law prescribes certain oaths and we're going to see that when we go through this in the future here but Christ what he's forbidding here is the flippant profane and careless and manipulative use of oaths in everyday speech during Christ's day many oaths were used for deceptive purposes they would say an oath by heaven you go oh he must be speaking the truth and really it was because they left the Lord's name out that's They were lying to you. And they thought it was okay to lie to you by saying, well, I swear by heaven, I swear by Jerusalem or whatever, and not actually telling you the truth. So the Pharisees used all kinds of tricks to sidestep the truth, and oaths were among them. They became very wicked. And to make their victim believe that the truth was being told, they would say, well, I swear by, you know, our our oath by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or my own head. And they would avoid using the holy name of God because they would come close to using the city of Jerusalem or heaven or earth or some body part, but it was all manipulation to make sure that they, you were telling them the truth when actually they were lying to you. And Jesus is teaching here that our conversation is to be so honest and our character so true that you don't need crutches or oaths to get people to believe you. That's what we should be coming from our hearts. Words depend on character and oaths cannot compensate for poor character proverbs chapter 10 verse 19 when there are many words transgression is what unavoidable but he who restrains his lips is wise listen the more words a man uses to convince you or a woman uses you to convince you the more suspicious you should be 
That's why watching commentators on modern day television and news networks now don't believe a thing they say. Especially when they go, I'm telling you the truth. Our speech is to be guarded and measured. Ephesians 4.29, right? Let no unwholesome word, dishonest word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification, building people up. According to the need of the moment, timing is everything. That it may give grace to those who hear. The scribes got it wrong. The rabbis, the Pharisees. You're not more righteous by giving an oath based on heaven, but you are pleasing to Christ when you deal with internal sins and you speak genuinely and truthfully. Is the Lord calling you today to repent of any misleading of others by your speech of being dishonest? You know that Jesus wants? He wants your speech to be as if you were under the oath by a judge who knows the truth of everything you say. You know why? Because you are under a judge who knows everything you say and why you say it. That's why. Number five, forgiving. You know you're in a relationship and not a religion when you are forgiving. Now this is tough stuff, friends. All right, but what's he say in verse 38? You have heard that it was said. This is what the ancients, the oral tradition, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They would take that and manipulate that, but Jesus would say, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. Stop right there. The law established this principle for limiting retribution so that it was just. In other words, it was designed to ensure that the punishment fit the crime in in civil cases, and the law was never meant to sanction acts of personal retaliation and revenge. Never retaliation, never revenge. But when your heart is made new, when Christ regenerates you and you're born again and all things become new, then what happens is, because of Christ's salvation, you can become willing to suffer loss rather than make other people suffer. You can. Now, get this, and I know for some of you, this is an incredible process. Please don't leave here today thinking, i got to get this down today, okay? We're supposed to be working towards these things, and some of this is labor and battle and war. Can I hear an amen to that? All right, but forgiveness is not an option. you got to get there. How can any believer who's been forgiven by Christ not forgive someone else? I mean, the Bible says this repeatedly. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ has forgiven you. The only reason you won't forgive somebody is you don't realize just how sinful you are and how much he forgave you. Reconciliation is a practice we're going to talk about at length when we get to this passage again as we work our way through these six major paragraphs. Reconciliation is a practice requiring great wisdom. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Each circumstance, each sin-caused offense requires wisdom, discernment, and time. And again, forgiveness does not mean that the person who did this great offense is not going to experience justice in a court of law. But you, your heart is the issue that Jesus is targeting, right? Your heart towards them. God is in charge of the consequences. God is in charge of where that leads them. But your heart is the issue. And this is what he's doing. He's exposing their hearts and exposing our hearts. That's what he's doing. 
But understand, in order to turn the other cheek, you got to stay where you are and not run away. I mean, this demands faith and love, which can also be, you know, really difficult. And it means you can be and will be hurt. But it's better to be hurt on the outside than to nurse a vengeful heart on the inside. It is a strong person that can love and suffer hurt. It's a weak person who thinks only of themselves and then hurts others to protect themselves. The rabbis were wrong. They said, well, you're you're righteous just, you know, by making your enemies pay for their offenses. And Jesus says, no, you are pleasing to Christ by dealing with the internal heart issues, forgiving those enemies. Is the Lord actually calling you today to forgive, possibly even reconcile someone who's offended you? Number six, you know you're in a relationship and not religion by loving and praying for your enemies. Loving and praying for them and not hating them. And not hating them. What does he say in verse 43? He says, you have heard. Okay, this is what was taught. It was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was an absolute maligning error. This was a distortion of the word. Jesus says, verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Nowhere did the law teach you to hate your enemies. The scribes got this completely wrong. The law indicated just the opposite. Exodus 23, verse 4, look at it. If you meet your enemy's ox, or you find his donkey wandering away, you shall surely, what? Return it to him. Sounds pretty loving to me. Get the donkey back. Do it for your enemy. And in the sermon, he goes on to define our enemies as those who curse us, those who hate us, and those who exploit us selfishly. This sounds like a junior high, high school campus every single day. Honestly, parents, this is what your students are facing. Pray for them. It is so hard. And Christian love, though, we know, is an act of the will, not simply based on a feeling. So therefore, Christ has the right to command us to love our enemies. Come on, Christian. Come on. Jesus loved you when you were his vile enemy. It's what it says, Romans chapter 5 verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through death of his son. You can show Christ's love by blessing those who curse you, doing them good, praying for them, to to basically care for them. When you pray for your enemies, you know what happens when you pray for them? You find it easier to love them. Seriously, praying for them takes a lot of the poison out of your hearts. And so in this sermon, Jesus says, you do this because it's a mark of maturity, it's Christ-like, and it is a witness to others. The Pharisees were wrong. You're not made righteous by hating your enemies. You are pleasing to Christ by dealing with the internal sins of the heart. Is the Lord today actually calling you to love and pray for someone who curses you, hates you, and exploits you? You say, Chris, I need more. You just flew over this passage. We don't do that at FBC. This is is wrong. Okay, we're going to take a look at the whole today, and then we're going to go back and look at every paragraph in depth. All six of them in the next six weeks. And I know some of you are saying, this is not enough. I've got issues about anger or lust or promises. I've got questions about divorce or remarriage and forgiving others and being reconciled and loving enemies. The answer is simple. It's really simple. Be here! The next six weeks, pray ahead, study, talk to others, ask the Lord to work in your life. Understand, when you look at this, are you ready for this? Jesus Christ 
lived this perfectly. Absolutely perfect. He forgave. He was not angry at his enemies. I mean, look at what he did. He never, ever once lusted. Uh, He kept his word. He spoke the truth. He loved. He forgave. That's our goal. Be like Christ. That's what the Spirit wants us to become. So, for right now, let's take this home. Letter A. Your righteous behavior cannot save you, but God's righteousness given to you can. Your righteous behavior can't save you, but God's righteousness given to you can. If sin is found in your heart, there's only one person that can change your heart and give you a perfect standing before God. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Come on, the conclusion of this chapter. Therefore, you are to be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Christ sets an unattainable standard. Hear me. I don't know where you're at. But not one of you is going to get to heaven unless you're perfect. I'm not kidding. You have to be absolutely perfect. And you can't be, and I'm way ahead of you. I can't be. Not a chance. And that's why Christ calls us to own our imperfection. You have to be perfect and you can't make one mistake externally and one mistake internally. Grandmas, these godly grandmas in our midst, just one thought. I hate that kid. That's it! (laughs) I love all of them but that one. Okay? (laughs) So true. James chapter 2 verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point has become what? Guilty of all. Wow. Though this standard is impossible to meet, God can't lower it without compromising his own perfection. He who is perfect cannot set an imperfect standard of righteousness, but the marvelous truth of the gospel is that Christ has met the standard on your behalf. He did it for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin, that's Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become, what is it? The righteousness of God. Christ exposes the phony external religion of his day by doing so. He convinces each of you of your massive sinfulness, of my sinfulness. But Christ can take our sin upon himself on the cross, have to be punished there by the Father, and give us his perfect righteousness and cover us in that white robe of righteousness so that we might have a perfect standing before God and walk with him now and live with him forever, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. That's why we surrender our lives to Christ. That's why he is He is not a religious leader. He is God incarnate who took that on your behalf and rose from the dead to prove that it was all true. Letter B. Take the internal battle of sin seriously. The people on that slope who are listening to this incredible sermon were all externalists. What did Christ do? He takes his knife of truth and he slices up their cosmetic external religion. He just shreds it in this passage. And it is an internal heart, mind, attitude, desire, your thinking, your motives that has been transformed. So now you can live differently. 
You and I can live differently. We have been made righteous, and to some measure, some measure, we can live righteous. That's right. That's what that bell was all about. You can. You can honor the Lord from your new born-again nature and obey Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not perfectly, but you can. Do not give up the fight. Listen, don't. Deal with those issues that He's exposed in you today, and we'll get to them specifically as we go back over this passage in the next six weeks. You are his child. And if you are his child, you will want to obey Christ, even with the internal things that nobody sees. But if you're his child, you'll want to obey Christ. But if you're not his child, you'll just make up excuses. If you're his child, you'll want to obey. If you're not his child, you'll make up excuses. Confess your sins, repent of your sins, get help with your sins internally. Let her see. The good news of salvation must always start with the bad news. Okay? Your friends, your neighbors, your family, Your heart, your thinking, your motives are sinful. You're in trouble with God. All your family and friends who are without Christ, every single one of them, will never be right with God unless they admit the depths of their sin, the sins of the heart. Not just the external actions, but the sins of thought, attitude, intention, internal sins of hate and lust and revenge and lack of love and dishonesty and manipulation and more. They must repent of not only the obvious external actions and sins that they take against God, but the seeker secret internal rebellion which only God and they know. That internal stuff. Make certain to call the lost to face the bad news. The bad news is they are condemned internally so that they might turn from their sin and depend on God's grace. Letter D. This section of the Sermon on the Mount exposes the true you. Let me be super complimentary today. This is who you really are. You're not the nice Christian lady. You're not the spiritual teen, you're not the serving dad, and you're not the gracious single here this morning. You're not. You're not the CG leader, disciple, or deacon, and faithful set-up guy that everybody thinks is super holy. You are not nice internally. You're a spiritual disaster. You are. Whom God chooses to save, forgive, and transform, and I'm right there with you. And until heaven, you're going to battle with a heart that can very quickly turn wicked and sin. I won't have you say amen. I just know you know that's true. Trust Christians, but never forget that they can turn untrustworthy. Respect Christians, but know that they can act disrespectful. Love Christians, but never forget that they can turn unloving. And never trust yourself. Trust the Lord with all your heart, but do not what? Stop it. I keep meeting Christians all the time. I know this is the right thing. I'm like, on what basis? The only basis we have is this book. When it veers outside of the truth of this book, you don't know. Have a little fear. Have a little mistrust. Have a little, boy, Lord, I better depend on you on this because I don't know if this really is going to honor you. Every single day, you and I as Christians are desperately dependent upon God's grace and the Spirit of God to keep our potential for sin and harm in check. Can I hear an amen? Letter E, evangelism is our great mission and purpose for being here. It's not our only purpose for being here. It's one of the purposes for being here. What's your purpose? To glorify and worship God. So can you glorify and worship God on earth or in heaven better? Answer? Okay, you're getting it now. I keep saying the same thing until you finally will shout out Heaven. Of course it's heaven. You're going to be perfect. Then if your purpose is to glorify God and worship Him, then why does He just take you to heaven? So you can accomplish here on earth what you can't do in heaven. And what can you accomplish on earth that you can't do in heaven? Answer? You share the gospel, but there's another thing. You can sin. 
You can sin and share the gospel. Two options. Which one do you think he left you here to do? Share the gospel. To put Christ on display. I love uh, George Smeaton, Scottish pastor and theologian. He said this, and I, I affirm this. To convert one sinner from his way is an event of greater importance than the deliverance of a whole nation, a whole kingdom, away from temporal evil. And I believe that. The change and transformation is a heavenly celebration. Who is it you know who needs to hear the gospel from you? Fulfill your purpose. And letter F, wash. Believers must remember they are washed in God's grace. Hear a message like this today. As I was going through it, I, I didn't want you to leave here discouraged but blessed. I know you and I can be overwhelmed by our sin. I want to ask you to raise your hand. We all get that way, especially as the Lord examines us internally. And honestly, this is maybe a reflection of my heart. Maybe you've been here too. But I got to the point about a decade or two ago that I thought, is there anything that I can do that's not tainted? Is there anything that I can actually do that counts for eternity? Is there anything I can say or teach or any ministry I can do that actually pleases Christ? Do you, don't you get that sick of your sin sometimes? Can I, a little nod here? After a passage like this today, it's crucial that you and I recall and daily live. You're washed. You're secure. You're absolutely bathing in God's grace. His grace is greater than our sin. Can I hear an amen to that? Jesus says it's finished. You're forgiven. All your sin is punished on the cross. God covers you with his righteousness. His grace is greater than our sin. You cannot lose what he gave you. Though you take sin seriously, he called you. He gifted you. He empowers you. He's going to glorify you. He's going to forgive all of your sin. It's already been past, present, and future. You're set for heaven right now. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is what? More. And he's the one who's going to say to you, as you walk in obedience and dependence upon him, well done, good and faithful servant. You please him not because of what you accomplished. You please him because what? Of what he accomplished through you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would be glorified by how we respond to the truth of this passage. Help us who still have questions to know, we're going to go back over this passage again, but section by section, and draw out all the truth that we might become more like your son. That's what you want. That's what your spirit wants from us, that in, even internally, not just externally, but internally, that we would think your thoughts, that we would think like you do, that we would be less and less prone to go down the path of, of revenge or anger or lust but more prone to seek to please you and delight in you and walk with you. Maybe it would be that you would work in the hearts of some here to actually draw them to yourself, that they would cry out for that new heart, that you would give them faith and repentance, and they would actually be able to surrender to you, and that you would cover them with righteousness and transform them internally and make them a new creature. We'll give you all the praise for what you'll do. You're the only one who deserves all of it, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for listening today. 
Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you.